0: Get started today at
2: TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.
0: Before we get started with this very special episode of Real Talk with Zuby, I have a quick favor to ask, and that is whether this is your very first time listening or you've been a regular listener to the show over the past few weeks, I ask that you please go on iTunes and leave a positive five-star review for the podcast if you are enjoying it head over to iTunes, search Zuby Podcast or Real Talk with Zuby, give it a positive review if you are enjoying it. That'll really help me out, help more people to discover the podcast and get it higher up in the iTunes algorithm. So, please do that, leave a positive review, and without further ado, let's get on with the podcast. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm for fame. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world. I would like to welcome you back to the podcast. This is Real Talk with Zuby, and today we've got on a really, really special guest. He is a stand-up comedian. He is a speaker. He is the host of the biggest free speech show in the entire world, I believe. I'd like to welcome to the show the host of The Rubin Report, Dave Rubin.
1: How you doing, my friend? Zuby, what's going on, brother? How you doing? I'm very well, thanks, man. How are you? I'm doing good I'm uh, just busy with life about to leave to go to Australia for a couple of weeks with Jordan Peterson uh, just plowing through plenty of episodes of my show making sure we have content while I'm gone and uh, you know trying to walk my dog occasionally and keep my head on straight so uh, busy is good every time I'm feeling overloaded from busy it's like you know what I remember the days where the alternative was there when you know the phone wasn't ringing and the emails weren't rolling in and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I would much rather this situation than the other one. So it's all good.
0: That's awesome, man. You've just given me the perfect segue there, because I actually wanted to uh, go back in time a little bit and and talk about your story in terms of how you've gone from that time when the phone wasn't ringing to <laughs> where you are now, where you're flying out to all these countries. I obviously met you in the UK a couple months ago when uh, you were doing the 12 Rules for Life tour in Oxford, which is where I went to university. And that was really awesome. So that was where I met you and uh, saw both you and Jordan speak, which was really cool. I'd like to, uh, yeah, just take it way back. Tell us about your life. Like, uh, where did you grow up? What was life like for Dave back when you were back when you were a kid, teenager, sure. all that?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a true New Yorker, which is a rare thing. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn before Brooklyn was cool. You know what I mean? Before all the hipsters with their little beards and expensive coffee and, and grass-fed everything came to Brooklyn. I was actually born in Brooklyn in 76, lived there until I was three years old. I'm, I'm the oldest child, uh, so I have a younger brother and younger sister. My folks moved to Long Island in about 79. That's uh, Then my brother was born, my sister a couple of years later. Uh, so I lived in, in Brooklyn, then in Long Island, which is the suburbs of New York City, about 45 minutes out of the city. I went to college upstate New York at SUNY Binghamton State University of New York at Binghamton, where I studied political science, although mostly I just smoked pot for four years <laughs> and, and played Sega Genesis. Uh, oh, yeah, what, what was your game? Well, I was mostly playing all the sports games. So, you know, NBA Live and NHL 95 and Madden, you know, 95, I guess it was around 95 to 97 were my like okay. peak years. So I was in college from 94 to 98. Um, Which, you know, it it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it's kind of funny, because I remember my sophomore year of college, I remember being in the dorm, and some kid down the hallway screaming that he was on the internet, and he was like yelling that he's on the internet. (laughs) And I went into his room, a bunch of us went in there, and on the screen on his computer, it had a, a New York Yankees logo and a Kansas City Royals logo that said, Yankees three, Royals one. And he was like, this is the internet. And I remember thinking, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. You know? <laughs> so, so even though it doesn't feel like a long time ago, you know, times, times do change. You know, when I got to college, there were, you know, we didn't really know, even know what email was. I had some like random selection of letters and numbers with an email address, but I had nobody to send email to or anything. So times, times change pretty quick. But anyway, uh, so born in Brooklyn, grew up in Long Island, went to, to Binghamton, upstate New York for college. Uh, and then, uh, most of my adult life, I lived in New York city, bounced around a couple places on the upper East, but mostly on the upper West side of New York city. And then six years ago, uh, in February, uh, moved out to LA and LA it's like uh, hotel California. You can get in, but you can never get out. Um, <laughs> and then of course that's really where, you know, things started to take off. And then I sort of became the version of myself that, that people seem to know now. So I know previously
0: you were on the Young Turks Network. I know that. So when you were doing that, was that after you'd moved to California or was that while you were still on the East Coast?
1: No, that was California. So before that, so I was doing stand-up in New York for about 12 years and I had okay you know, I had the successes and the failures and the struggles and the the good times, everything that that sort of adds up to be. I had all of that. Like I lived that life as a comic. I used to stand mm. out on street corners for sometimes two hours a night. And neither, you know, either sleet nor rain nor snow would stop us. And uh, just to get stage time. And you you know, you make next to nothing and you could maybe make a little bit on the road, but it's about, you know, honing your craft and and that whole thing, and uh, and I ran a couple comedy clubs that were started by myself and a few other comedians, which was actually really great, because it gave, a list, it gave us a little bit of the power back, so we ran clubs in Times Square. So if you've ever been out in Times Square, where all these mm. people are handing out tickets, come to comedy tonight, and it's really annoying, actually. We, we were some of the first crew that started that thing. Ah. But it was a great way of not only getting a, a really diverse in the right sense, of diversity, a, a diverse audience, because, you know, Times Square, it's the crossroads of the world. Like we would do a comedy show and it could be like you could have like four Norwegian tourists, you know, a couple people from Harlem, you know, two Japanese people, you know, a, a group of Mormon missionaries. And you have to make all these people laugh. So <laughs> it was a really cool laboratory that we just created and we split some of the profits. and uh, And it was a really nice way to to do stand up for many years. So I did that for a couple of years and then eventually um when I started seeing the business change, you know, in the late I started in 98 and by the early 2000s, you know, reality TV was kicking in and you know, I saw all my comic friends, they still believed that the old method of success existed, sort of like you'd get on the Johnny Carson Tonight show if you do 5 minutes of stand up and if he likes you, you're going to sit down with him and if you sit down with him, that means you're going to get a sitcom. And that's how it worked for a long time. So for mm. Seinfeld and Ellen DeGeneres and Roseanne Barr and Louis Anderson and Tim Allen and a gajillion people. But I remember thinking that it just wasn't working anymore. And I always thought, well, I've got to figure out other ways to, to be successful. And eventually I ended up doing uh, doing a podcast early on before. I didn't even know how to download a podcast. And I was doing, doing this little podcast, mostly on pop culture and stuff. Uh, and that got picked up by Sirius. XM satellite radio, and I was doing that for a while.
0: When did you start that
1: podcast? So I started doing that. That was probably around uh, 2010 or so, something like that. Okay. So early,
0: early podcasting days. Yeah, right? it,
1: was, it was really early. I mean, I'm not kidding. I did not know how to get a podcast on my own phone. And there I was as a, as a podcaster. And we were pretty successful. And we got, you know, nice sponsors and, and we're doing good stuff. And then it went on Sirius XM, which was great. But what I realized was I wanted to be seen again, you know, like there's something about, you know, there's a beautiful there's a beautiful renaissance right now happening just with audio, which is really nice because we can do this and people don't have to stare at us. We don't have to put on makeup and whatever else you might do or look a certain way or dress a certain way. It's a little more relaxed. You know, you put a camera on somebody and it automatically changes a little bit of something. Um, which I like when I'm doing my show because I think it makes people a little more professional, a little more sort of clear and direct, but there's something really nice about just audio. Um, but after being on the radio in Sirius XM for a while, I realized that I wanted to be seen again. I wanted to be, uh, I don't mean that really as like, seen in like the egotistical way of like, I want to be like recognized and like, you know, have camera, the paparazzi outside the restaurant. I meant like there was a piece that it didn't feel quite relevant in a way like all these people were listening, but sort of nobody knew who I was, something like that. Mm. And, uh, and then this opportunity presented itself with the Young Turks and uh, I picked up, I, I actually uh, leased my car, picked it up in Manhattan, raining night, it's about midnight, I drive back to my, my little apartment and, uh, and we packed, threw the dog in the car and drove cross country and uh, showed up in LA. You know, life's been an adventure since then to say the least.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Before we, before we get on to carrying on from that point, what was it like uh, growing up for you, man? What I wanted to do on this podcast, funnily enough, is as someone who's always watching and listening to your show, I think I've, I've probably seen like literally the last 100 episodes. So <laughs> I feel like I know your. Bless your blood. Like, <laughs> that's all good, man. I feel like I, I know your politics really, really well. Yeah. But funnily enough, I was thinking, you know what? I don't actually know that much about Dave's sort of life story. So I think it would be, I thought it would be interesting sort of for the first half of that to dive into that a a little bit more, you know, so even what you were just saying about doing the comedy thing, because obviously I'm a musician, so I can relate to a lot of that, just traveling around, going out on the street, passing out flyers, shaking hands, talking to people, selling tickets or, you know, with me, CDs, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's always interesting to find that backstory of what it is that got people to where they currently are, because people always just see the tip of the iceberg. You know, people see, people look on your channel and they're like, okay, cool. He's got, you know, almost a million subscribers and he's spoken to this person and that person. But it's interesting to see, okay, how did it go from, you know, there was a whole evolution to get to that stage.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny because uh, I'm actually in the midst of writing my book, which, uh, which has been picked up. We've got a great publisher. It'll be out in spring of 2020. And um, when I started writing it, and there's a limit of how much I can tell you the specifics about this part. Okay, but, but, but when I started writing it, really I was I was at first writing a, a sort of political manifesto, like a real sort of guide to classical liberalism. And the more that I've written it, the more that I've realized that it sort of has to wind in and out of my own personal story, because it's not just that I believe in these ideas of classical liberalism and the individual and limited government and laissez faire economics and all of these things. It's not I don't just believe them by magic. It's actually because of my own personal story that I've come to believe these are the right set of ideas uh, to say, move society forward in in the most free possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of writing about this and going back into the to growing up and all that stuff. So I would say I had I had a pretty good childhood. You know, it's funny. And I've, I've been writing about this. It's like, you know, everybody wants to tell their story and make it sound like it was the worst possible thing, because that's how you get cred. Right. Like yeah. you better have come in, grown up in a broken family where you were beaten and didn't have food on the table. And there were 27 kids in one bedroom and you were in a war zone and, you know, all of that. I didn't have that. I, I had yeah. a pretty decent childhood. My, my parents, they're coming up on like their 47th wedding anniversary. You know, we had- oh, wow Congratulations yeah, to them. Yeah, yeah, we had we had hard times and good times and uh, struggles and, you know, death and life and all of those things. Um, but, I, but it was a pretty normal childhood. I, I grew up, you know, hanging out in a pretty safe community where my friends were just riding our bikes around all day, you know, just getting into mischief and going to the arcade. And, you know, I played a ton of video games. We played a lot of sports. Um, I wasn't you know, my family. It's interesting. Nobody in my family is involved in politics in any way. But my family was sort of political in that, you know, any any holiday uh, that would come around. um, We were always there would be a huge table. You know, my parents would put every leaf in the table and we'd add extra tables and you got 30, 40 people sitting at a table and there's a separate kids table. And every holiday, the conversations always became something political or something philosophical. And, and people would be yelling and arguing and fighting and all these things. And then at the end, dessert would be served and, you know, snap our fingers <laughs> and, and everybody's good to go again. And we didn't hate each other. And we had, you know, we argued about abortion. We argued about taxes. I, you know, I remember arguments about economics and foreign policy and all of these things. But I, so I think it was very ingrained in me that you can argue with people and still love them. You can argue. Yeah. Uh Crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess, I guess he came from the future, but that you can, you can argue and not, and not want to kill somebody. You can, you can disagree with someone. And that doesn't mean that they're a terrible person because I saw that within my own family. So I think that that really was ingrained in me and people ask me, you know, how do I, put up with you know, these college kids screaming at me or when a guest says something that I obviously don't agree with. And it's like, I don't think it's my purpose as a host. If a guest, like I don't wanna bring on people that I only agree with. So when I bring on someone that I disagree with, I think I do a pretty decent job of civilly making, making it clear when I don't disagree, when, when I do disagree, but I don't need to berate them or prove that I'm right. I don't, I don't feel that that's my job. And if, if somebody doesn't like that, then I would welcome them to watch another show. I always think it's funny when these trolls are coming after me all day. And it's, I'm always like, is someone forcing you to watch this, you know? <laughs> Cause if someone's forcing you to watch this, I want to hire these guys, you know what I mean? We'll get some more views. Um, But but so I grew up, yeah, in a pretty in a pretty decent family. Um, I would say we were you know, we were definitely solidly middle middle class. Uh, And my father grew up in a lower middle class family. And my grandfather before him was very, very lower, lower class poverty, basically. And it's a beautiful. And that's why I love the American story so much, because it's like my grandfather came from nothing. His he did grow up in a bedroom with six other kids and his dad died when he was two and struggled and didn't go to college. He got my dad and his two sisters to be able to go to college. Uh, I then went to college and like, we, it really is the true American story of families that, that all came here from all walks of life um, and from all different backgrounds and nationalities and all of those things to make a better life in America. So I, I love that that I came from something like that. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, I I had, a pretty, I had a pretty good, decent life. I really did. And I think that that's helped frame why I care about the things that I care about. There's this weird thing now where it's like only if you either come from the worst or if you view America or the West in like the worst possible ways, that seems to give people the cred to talk about it. And I think what we need now is more people that actually have reap the rewards of the goodness, which by the way, everyone has. I mean, there's no one that's oppressed in America. You you know, when they talk about oppression, like you might have problems in America. Some your neighbor might've come from more, you're, you might come from drug addicted parents and a series of other things, but you're not oppressed. The system is not oppressing you. It may not be giving you everything you want, but I, I would argue that's not what the system's there in the first place. So, so that I guess is partly why I talk about the things that I talk about because I've seen over the course of generations of my family what this freedom has given us. And I don't want that to go away. I think it's the most incredible thing. And the fact that so many people, you know, you guys in the UK or here in the United States, that so many people who live in the freest societies in the history of the world. I mean, the United States truly is the freest society in the history of the world. And that people are walking around and it's not just random people, it's a good collection of people are walking around afraid to say what they think, afraid to express themselves uh, out of fear of losing their job or the mob coming to get them or being labeled a racist or a bigot or homophobic. It's like that needs to be fought because if it isn't, it won't magically get better. The people that are trying to take these freedoms from us, they will gladly do it. So we, we better start getting brave and quick. And I think that that's really, it's something that I, it's just in me and it's something that I try to bring to everything that I'm doing all the time. Awesome.
0: Well, that, that sounds very similar to some of the reasons why I started this podcast because yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, last year, I don't know. I don't know exactly what, um, actually I do. I do know what triggered it because I used to be, um, especially when it came to social media and stuff, I would never put any kind of political or social commentary or personal beliefs up there really. Like it was always just, I'm a musician, I'm a rapper. I'm going to just 100% keep this from my music keep all this stuff to myself whatever and then over the last couple of years from sort of 2014 2015 I started having more private conversations with people and I was starting to flag up little red flags yeah. some of which are, are have like grown into quite large snowballs at this point but there, there were certain things I was noticing and I was saying you know to privately with friends and family and I was just like this is weird. You know what I mean? Like uh, this doesn't, this thing doesn't make sense or that thing doesn't make sense or that thing that this is going a little bit too far or whatever. And then I was, um, I was having a conversation on Facebook with somebody who, um, actually was a student union president of one of the universities here in the UK. And we were having, um, this literally, literally on a public Facebook post. And I was having a disagreement with him about free speech. He was essentially saying that, the people who promote free speech often use it as a metaphor for hate speech and <laughs> he 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 did, he did that old thing yeah. of kind of saying i support free speech but especially given this is someone who's got a prominent position at the university yeah. i i felt i kind of had to push back on that and be like no like this doesn't this doesn't make sense and I, I stated my case and then yeah i somehow was was labeled or or branded as being some kind of some kind of fascist or some kind of, you know, the usual ones. And then he, he suggested that, um, one, my views are regressive. Two, that people with views like mine, whatever that means, I'm pretty much a centrist. People with views like mine are the reason why people suffer and die, which I thought was a bit extreme. And also that people like myself should not be allowed on university campuses. And I was like, wow, like, who, what do you what do you think I believe in kind of thing? So I was just, so I kind of had that, I reflected on that a bit and I was like, wow, if if we're reaching the point where I am considered some some kind of a, some kind of extremist, or there's people who think that, you know, my views are beyond the pale and my views are very much in line with yours, actually.
1: Yeah, well, you're hitting it right there. I mean, the big idea is where if your views, right, and, and we can discuss what both of our views are. But this is what happens to everybody. All of the good, decent people who still have a little flickering of individual thought in their head, that still have a couple neurons going, I'm I'm not going to give in to the mob. They think that they can be quiet and that that it'll somehow skip them, that it'll (laughs) come around them and they'll be okay. But then what happens is exactly what happens to you. The rubber meets the road, someone at your university or someone at your work, or it might be your wife or your husband. Something will happen if you dare still think. And when that thing happens, you have to make a choice. And I would say it's basically the most important choice that a human can make, which is I will, I will live of my own volition. I will live as the master of my own thoughts, as someone that is trying to figure out what's going on here, but, but using, what, using the abilities of my own brain to figure out what the world is and how I want to live in it. Or you can just acquiesce and you can bow forever and if you dare ever not bow, they'll, they'll destroy you again. But I remember when you started tweeting a little more aggressively about this. <laughs> that, that's actually—I yeah. think you were on my radar a little bit before that. But that's really when I was like, "Oh, now this is really interesting." The thing is that the the the, I, the set of ideas that generally we seem to be fighting, which is sort of this new postmodern progressive set of ideas, which you know, re, which at its most distilled level is just—it's just a collectivism. That's all it is. That we should judge as groups and not as individuals. I mean, really, like as I sit here, so even though I know we're doing this just in audio for the podcast, think about how insane it would be for me to look at you. Now we now we've hung out before, so I know more about you. Like so I know you grew up in Saudi Arabia and like there are things that I know about you, right? Yeah. But if I didn't know anything about you, think how sad, depressing, and actually prejudice it would be for me to look at you and go, he's black, so he must believe this or that. And this is exactly what the, the guy or, or lady that you just referenced, and basically the the left, as a general rule of thumb, is doing to everybody. You are the enemy because you're an apostate. You can't be a black person who doesn't believe in um, what the oppression Olympics or whatever specific policy they are for that day. And not only that, but they're encroaching. It's not just um it's not just about immutable characteristics. Now it's like go try to be a you used to be able to be a pro life Democrat. You know, Um, I I always describe myself as begrudgingly pro-choice, and I'm really struggling with this one now, especially.
0: I've seen actually, as your show has progressed and as certain things have happened, I feel like I've seen that position sort of, sort of wavering to getting the stage where it's like, "Mm, I'm very conflicted
1: here. Look, I've always, I've always thought, I mean, there's a reason, there's a reason I say begrudgingly. I mean, I view it as, I view it as a truly um, horrific isn't even the right word, but I, I view it as a a deep existential issue that when people, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, if you say, if you say you're pro life, then the, the left will say you hate women. If you say you're pro choice, the right will say you hate children. And of course these, yeah. th- this is such an idiotic false dichotomy. So I've always viewed it as I want the woman to be able to, to basically control her body. And I, and the reason I was doing 20 weeks was because they've, they've proven that the fetus can feel pain by then. Now that's about five months in. I mean, that there's no doubt that that's a life. Like, forget, forget day one, you know, sperm meets the egg. Is that the, the genesis of life? We could put that aside, that's for theologians and biologists to deal with. But, but even my, my 20 week thing is becoming tougher, but the reason it's becoming tougher also is because the left is now going so bananas on abortion where you can abort an eight month year, uh, baby that it's like they're making every position hard to hold to bring this back to what you said earlier, that's why this thing where it's like, oh, I can be, I'm just a centrist, I'm just a nice guy who wants to live and let live, and I I don't want to impose my beliefs on everybody. Well, the problem is that there's a group of people out there that really want to impose their beliefs on you. And what what I'm really struck by now is, this is the failure of good liberals. I I don't even blame conservatives or people on the right for this. I think good liberals, because, because generally, we care about people in a, in a primary way. We want people to, to feel good and, and, and live good lives. We often, although I, now I'm saying we in a sort of loose sense, we mm-hmm. often put aside um, rationality for some easy answers that just sound good. And that's what the left is selling right now tremendously. So they've eliminated you know any ability to have nuance on abortion. They, they, want, they believe the taxes are always the answer, and, and if someone's rich, they must be a bad guy. And, and you know if you even talk about a border, you're a bigot. And these are horrible positions to hold because what they do, not only are they not, they're not true positions, they're, they're not originally good and sound and logical, but what they do is they cause the rest of the people that would be your allies to just be like, you know what, these guys are so bananas, I'm going to join up with some other people that I actually don't really disagree with, but at least there's some flexibility intellectually. And that's why right now, I mean, look, I would say all my allies right now, basically, and I don't like the term ally, but like all of the, (laughs) all of the people that I, that I basically have some, uh, affiliation with, they're all on the center right. You know, there are obviously tons of libertarians, but even, you know, basically moderate and secular conservatives and even some religious conservatives, there's a willingness to agree to disagree. There's a there's a richness and a desire to, to debate ideas. And. It just doesn't exist on the left, and when I say that, then then you, what happens is every time I say that, then someone finds some random person on Twitter that is decent on the left, and I'm not saying there aren't any decent people, yeah, but yeah. the voices that they've been empowering, um, you know, they personally attack everybody. Sorry to interject,
0: but okay. those those decent voices on the left are often accused or labeled as being Bingo. on the right anyway. So. You know, when, when someone says something like that of like, OK, who are the who are liberals who have still kind of got their, their heads screwed on and who are still sane? You know, you've obviously got yourself. You're you're big, very big on the idea of classical liberalism. I think of someone like uh, Tim Pool, who, you know, is very, very rational. But again, to the point that he's. <laughs> right. He's all, he, he always has to kind of like remind people, oh, I I, I am on the left, but- Well, uh, I love
1: that. The, yeah. It's <laughs> funny, I love that with Tim. I love that with Tim, because I, I liked him a lot and I, I absolutely respect him and I think the guys are real journalist, but I always think it's funny, because then he'll try, you know, he gets called, he's called alt-right, he's called all these things. And then he always says this thing about, you know, well, I supported Bernie or I might support him again. And I'm like, well, that's Tim, that's the place we should argue because I, Bernie's got the wrong set of ideas. Um, but you're, you're, you're exactly right, actually, because I could list, someone actually at one point broke down the entire list of all my guests to figure out where they fell politically. And actually at one point within the last couple of months, it really turned out that most of them were liberal in, in the classical sense of liberalism in in what the UK views as a real liberal. Now in the United States, liberal and progressive have become this monster. So the word liberal has been destroyed. Now, I, I think I've. I guess I've been one of the leading people of separating those two ideas. But but there's another way to describe it um, would be and my guest that I just had on, actually, I'm not sure if it's posted yet, uh, Tyler Cowan, who's an economist out of George Mason in DC, the phrase he uses, it's not his phrase, is a small L libertarian, basically. Is is a classical liberal that there's no real difference if you believe in some utility of the state but you basically believe in the individual and laissez faire economics and states' rights and things like that and a limited government then you're a small L libertarian that's basically what a classical liberal is you guys in the UK you've held on to the word liberal like if I was if I lived there I could I could more I could more honestly not honestly but I could more um, effectively say I'm a liberal and have people understand what that means sure. so so that's that's the difference there but you're you're quite right. That I could list off a zillion liberals that I've had on the show, but they're all considered apostates by the left. And that's yeah. what the inherent problem is.
0: So given that definition, where do you even think that the divide between classical liberalism, small L libertarianism and yeah. conservatism even is, I mean, I think it's, I think it's good that they're all consolidating. I think that yeah. I think that's actually a great thing. But those things you just said there like small government, state mm-hmm. rights, I guess things you know, may perhaps lower taxes, um, freedom of the individual, all those kind of things, those are actually if someone was to list what conservatism, conservatism is. Conservatism, yeah. That, it, it, that also sounds very much like conservatism. Sorry, maybe not conservatism like 50 years ago. Yeah. But modern day conservatism there seem to be gigantic overlaps there so How do you even define those terms for yourself now?
1: Yeah, so this is where we live in a time where there's so much upside down right now. And I would say that the, you know, there's a lot of metaphors that I've heard on this, uh, that the Trump election caused the chessboard to be thrown upside down, now the pieces are everywhere. You know, I likened it on my show to, um, you know, what everyone wanted before Trump was elected was a panther in a china shop. We didn't want the bull to come in and wreck the whole thing, but we wanted a panther to come in and, you know, whack Whack something off the you know off the desk or off the uh, shelf, but you don't get you don't get a panther in a china shop. That's why the phrase isn't panther in a china shop. You get a bull in a china shop, and that's that's what we've got. So anyway, because of the Trump election, everything is sort of upside down right now. So it's like if you you would have thought that the Republicans uh, or say the right in America was traditionally more for war or nation building or George W. Bush style, you know, Iraq style invasions that kind of thing. Trump is very isolationist. Now, scaling back out of the world is, that should be a, something of the left, but they hate Trump, even though he's doing those things. Keep in mind, Hillary and Joe Biden, by the way, voted for the Iraq war. So everything is, is sort of upside down at the moment. But to answer your question, which is, the, which is the right question, I think, which is, all right, well, if you've got classical liberals and, and libertarians and conservatives and this, this center-right wide tent growing, what are the differences that they have? I mean, one of the differences that they have, and I think we have this more in America uh, than you guys have in the UK, is that conservatism, it for about twenty, at least twenty years, but probably more, got really crossed up with the religious right. Mm-hmm. So this is where they became rapidly anti-gay marriage, let's say, or not forget put a gay marriage aside. They became rapidly anti-gay. To be a conservative, that doesn't make sense because you would want limited government. If you believe in the individual, then you might say that you might find that because of your religious beliefs that being gay is immoral, okay? I don't believe that, but you might as a conservative. But if you truly believe the tenets of conservatism, then you would say the government has no right to say what contract two people can get involved in. So mm-hmm. so unfortunately, the right got got really crossed up with that. And there's many reasons, and there's been plenty of books written about this. I mean, this was partly because of Ah, uh, Ken Melman, who ran uh, George W. Bush's re-election campaign, and saw gay marriage as a real wedge issue, and and Carl Roben, and a couple other things. Um, but what I'm what I'm very uh, enthused at at the moment is that I see a secular conservatism really taking root. I just had Heather McDonald on my show from the Manhattan Institute, who's a secular conservative. Uh, this Tyler Cowen who I had, he's a libertarian, but but secular. You know, there's a lot of secular libertarians. But I see a willingness right now. Even when I go to uh, events through Turning Point USA, which is a, a college conservative uh, group, and they're they're very Trump, pro-Trump. They, they've
0: platform. just launched in the UK.
1: Oh, and I I've been seeing their yeah hand, I saw that yeah their yeah hand handle in the UK pop up. Um, look, they're they're big with the with the Christian conservatives, but I don't see any bigotry there. I, I don't know. Look at the end of the day, would they like Ben Shapiro to you know take off his yarmulke and be a Christian? I so. <laughs> I suppose maybe they would, but but he knows they're not his enemy. They're glad that he comes there and talks and, and, you know, promotes his ideas, where that certainly Hmm. doesn't happen on the other side. So I don't know that the little difference—so, for example, can you be conservative and be pro-choice? I don't know that any conservative would say, well, you can be conservative and pro-choice. But what I would say is you can certainly—liberal in the classical sense— if you believe in the individual. now this is a great debate where we have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And should we be focusing on the woman's life or the fetus's life? That's a great philosophical debate to have, and I'd I'd be happy to have that debate. Um, But I see a little more fluidity on some of the issues um, in a liberal sense. But I would say what a great set of problems this is actually, that you have this new movement of people. And by the way, this is the movement that, I mean, the media just hates and academia, you know, (laughs) This, but you've got this really interesting movement of people right now who are setting aside the differences. And you yeah, look when I do stand-up now, I, I usually do a little quick poll of the audience to find out who's conservative, who's libertarian, who are there any progressives here? You know, and I do this fun little and I make fun of each group or whatever. And a huge percentage of my audience, I'd say usually around 60 or 70 percent, is conservative. And that means a bunch of conservatives are showing up for a gay married, pro pot, pro choice against the death penalty for reforming the prison systems. I believe in state funded education. Uh, I think it can be a lot better and we should have more vouchers and choice and all that. But I mean, these are liberal ideas and I've got conservatives are the bulk of my audience. So what does that tell you? That tells you there's been a sea change here. And I think those of us that are alive and awake, let's run with it and see what we can do. Yeah,
0: no, I think think it's quite exciting. These days I'm kind of splitting it more into Yeah, people who are more authoritarian minded and people who are more libertarian minded. And, And to a simpler degree, just people who are being, who are really thinking and, you know, being rational and being fair versus people who are just being very emotional and ideologically driven. And I'll talk to certain people and they all kind of talk the same way. They use the exact same phrases. Mm-hmm. They use the exact same words, the exact same terminology, the exact same art. And the reflection it beca- in
1: it, their voice is the same often too. Yeah, right? it, it's the it, way it, they speak.
0: Yeah, it's very weird. It becomes very, very predictable. And it's like, if they hold this one idea, oftentimes I'm like, okay, I, I can almost infer your entire worldview right now, right? You know, mm-hmm. if, if someone believes in that one, then the rest of them, it's like it, these ideas just come as a package. you know it's like you you maybe you went to university and studied sociology or something and got like really into certain ideas and now you've just kind of graduated and come out and you've just got this ideas of the whole privilege and victim hierarchy and oppression narratives and ideas of white privilege and patriarchy and you know it's like they, they just come as this this whole package.
1: As Peter Boghossian first put it on my show, um, it is a secular religion. All the markings of religion they've traded in because, you know, generally these people, they've traded in religion uh, for a new set of ideas. And they believe it is an all encompassing set of ideas. And only if their ideas and this is where why the set of ideas is so profoundly dangerous. We have this new crop of Democrats that are really far, far left. From Ocasio Cortez a
0: They're getting extreme. I'm I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it from a distance. I'm just seeing stuff online, but I've seen I've seen some stuff there, and I'm like, what on earth is like how are people voting
1: for that? Like they're truly extreme in their in their ideas, but it's not only that, you know, there there's this great moment a couple weeks ago where uh, an economist or uh, sorry, an interviewer was asking Ocasio Cortez how could she pay for all of these things? And in effect, she says it doesn't really matter how you pay for it because it's morally right. And, and that's what, these are the people who've traded in religion. They're not religion, they're not for religion. Mm-hmm. And yet they've created something that's, there's a morality based in their worldview, which is exactly what religion gives. And I don't think that's a coincidence that, and this is a weird thing for me to say as someone that is secular, is that as, and and I think Jordan Peterson has really hit on this. I think it explains a lot of his success. And you you heard the talk in Oxford. It's like, as the world trades in some ancient truths, let's say, that religion has provided, and it doesn't mean that religions as institutions have all done good things and all of that. But as we've traded in some sort of ancient truths, we, we now have a set of people that think if only they could manage the world, if they could only be the ones in charge, they could fix all of the things that all of their backwards ancestors never could. And mm-hmm. that is an absolute recipe for disaster. So I think what you said before about you're either authoritarian or libertarian, that's it. Like you either believe that it is your job on this earth to figure out what makes you happy and fulfilled and what puts you on an adventure and gives you a mission in life. You either believe that or you believe that most things should be given to you. So you should be given a college education. You should be given a job. And and actually when when they're telling you they're giving you something, but that doesn't come with nothing. What they're actually doing is taking away the most fundamental thing there is, which is your chance to figure out how to live on this earth and and that's why i'm so against this thing because i know for myself i'm on a freaking adventure of life and and it's it's basically pretty good and i get some hate for it and that's all right but like what i wake up every day and i've got something to do and it's important and real and people care about it and i care about it i don't know what could possibly be more rewarding than that and i want i want that opportunity to be afforded to people i don't want the opportunity to be all right, congratulations, as the left wants now, a guarantee of a government job. That sounds horrible. <laughs> congratulations, you're gonna have a government job, whatever the hell that is, even though at the same time, we know robots are gonna replace and automation's gonna replace all of these jobs anyway. So what does that mean? You're gonna sit in a green room with a fluorescent light punching things all day, stamping things, congratulations, the government gave it to you, you got a job. We gotta fight this thing.
0: Yeah, well, I think what's really interesting with the consolidation as well, touching back on what you said about this whole progressivism slash intersectionality, religion, cult thingy, whatever it is, belief system. I think what's interesting is I think even people who are atheistic traditionally, even some pretty vocal atheists um, or agnostics, I think a lot of people are starting to better understand religion in terms of the role and function it plays in society so i think oftentimes when people talk about religion so i mean i'm, I'm a christian myself but i think oftentimes if i'm if i'm talking to an atheist we're talking on two different levels mm-hmm. so i think not all atheists but i think a lot of atheists have a very shallow understanding of religion to be honest with you so they'll just look at like the literal things they'll be like okay Noah's Ark, this story doesn't make sense. It doesn't align with science. They look at the Genesis story. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't align with science there. And they they kind of trash the whole thing. But in terms of the function of religion, in terms of getting to where we are now, and lots of the ideas that have been instilled, certainly in Western society, and just giving people a big tent to gather around also some of the charitable aspects of it. So what's the best way to say it? I think a lot of things over the past couple of decades seem to have been, like there's been an effort to break them down or root them out. That goes from the traditional nuclear family structure to um, belief in religion and other, some of these other things that have been around for a very long time. And it looks like certain people just want to then, it's like they're kind of creating this fracture. And then trying to use the government to exactly. fix the fracture, right? So you break away. You, so you've kind of damaged the family unit via certain methods. And then you, so now you've got way more single mothers. You've got more fatherless homes. You've got this, you've got that. And now it's like, oh, now we need the government to to patch this thing. It's like you've torn away religion and the the charity that comes with it, right? Like every religion has a very big charity aspect, like giving is a massive it's a massive massive fundamental part of all three abrahamic religions
1: well generally it's, religious people give much more in charity which is ironic because you know the, the the postmodernists will say that the religious people are all selfish and they you know they only care about themselves and all that mm. but religious people generally do give far more people people on the right by the way generally give far more
0: yeah it's funny because it, you know it it throws a big spanner into a lot of the narratives So to give you an example, in the UK, there's the whole debate like uh, government provided meals for school children. Mm -hmm. Okay. And someone like me, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad idea or an idea that shouldn't happen, but I would say that is not necessarily within the remit of the government to Uh provide school meals to children. Okay. I'll say that. And then someone will you know, come and start throwing accusations at me, how, how how I want kids to starve and die and stuff. And I'm like, no, I'm just saying like, A family and B, charity community churches like what I'm like these are things that can be done without needing to force it
1: from the very top right so the question is so the question is is it the purview of the government to do that and when it's always easy to say yes that it's the purview of the government to do everything no one wants a child to starve what's the easiest thing to say Let's raise taxes so we can bring more, take more money from some people to give it to other people. Now, often, and we find this almost exclusively in every government program, once a government program starts, it just gets bigger and bigger. It just sucks more money. The people that it's helping actually never get out of those programs because then you're, you're giving them something that they didn't have to work for. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't feel empathy for these people. But your point, I think, is basically the right one, which is, If you were to take some of these programs away or at least scale them way back would not good people and charitable organizations and religious institutions fill that void i think in most of the cases yes and if if the answer is no that would be an interesting lesson about humanity that maybe we need to learn actually instead of artificially propping up this thing that we can never learn because we never know what would happen if we just let people just let them be, sort of. There's always another reason to give the government more power. And, and then if you ask people, I mean, even if you ask people on the left, I mean, this is the irony. You ask these guys, well, because their answer always is government. But it's just that they want their people. in. if only Bernie was in charge and Corbyn was in charge and all of their people, their people were in, those are the good guys and they're morally right, so everything will be fine. But it doesn't even stand to reason. I mean, it shows you how hysterically authoritarian this is because you know what happens in government, in a free society? Sometimes it's your guy that's in charge and sometimes it's the other guy. And right now, if you think Trump is Hitler, he is not. If you think he is, and by the way, has Trump jailed any journalists? Is he, is he locking away citizens? Uh, no, you know what Hitler did? He didn't let people out of the country, right? Trump's not. Trump's. It's not even that Trump's not letting people in because immigration numbers are basically exactly where they've always been. But if we were, if Trump was stopping people from leaving, yes, I would have a problem with it. But anyone's free to leave America, as always, of course. And they never do, by the way. They tell you how horrible it is here, and they never leave. I mean, it would be nice if Lena Dunham would get out of here, but she just keeps staying. <laughs> but the point is. The the trade-off of living in a free society is that if you limit the power of the government, when it's your guys in charge, they'll be able to do a little bit of good on the margins, but they won't be able to do that much bad. But but the beauty of that is when the guys that you think are the bad guys, the Trumps come in, well, guess what? He won't be able to do that much and he won't be able to wreck that much. That's basically how our system has been working. But what I think is happening is the Democrats now, Imagine what it would be like if one of these people who who this new crop of democratic socialists who are just going to drop the democratic part the second they're really in power. um, Imagine if they were really in charge right now. And then they've already called half the country racists and bigots. And then and then they have the tech companies, too. So now if the government and the I mean, thank God the government and Trump or Trump and the tech companies are at odds with each other because it creates a little bit of a balance of power there for our ability to communicate. But what happens when the tech companies are all lefties and then the government's all lefties and then they've called you a Nazi and me a Nazi? Will we have any right to be on any of these platforms? Can they use the government to, to, you know, look at our taxes or whatever else they want to do, which, by the way, the Obama government did do uh, on, uh, you know, tax charitable organizations that were on the right, Tea Party organizations. Trump, as far as I know, isn't investigating any left-wing charities. So it's like, we're, we're in a really weird spot, and I would say the only solution to it always is just scale back the power, scale back the power. You keep more of your money. You live however you want to live, and just as long as you don't come on my property and do it, uh, we're, we're going to be good, basically. Yeah.
0: So, Dave, tell me a little bit more about your evolution to reach the stage and reach these positions that you now hold. I know that previously, of course, like we said at the beginning, you were on the Young Turks Network, which is very left-leaning from the videos I've watched. So you studied political science at college. At that stage, where would you have positioned yourself? Would you have called yourself progressive or just have your views changed that much? Or I
1: mean, back then, back then, when I was in college, 94 to 98, I don't know that progressive there, were, there was an, an idea of a progressive, but it wasn't the thing that it is now. I was liberal. I always consider myself liberal. I mean, on my nightstand next to my bed right now, I have John Stuart Mill on liberty. And I would recommend that anyone, when people always ask me, like, how do you get into these ideas? You could read on liberty in an hour um, and have a great um, wealth of knowledge given to you about, about the individual. I would say I was liberal, but I didn't, I wasn't as limited government as I am now for sure. Like I actually thought, and then you know, Peter Thiel said something interesting to me. Peter Thiel, who of course is the the co-founder of PayPal um, and uh, and he's a libertarian. He always says, you know, I wouldn't be libertarian if any of it worked. And his point is the system doesn't work anymore. So the only way to reset it would be to take some power away from it. Now I've, I've illustrated that obviously while we've been talking here. Um, but I, so I would say I was a liberal, but I was more, I believed in government. I believed that government could do these things. I also didn't, I hadn't woken up to how all of these government programs usually do bad things and keep people in poverty. And the more guns you take away, the more crime there is And all of these things that now I see, I see statistics and evidence of, which I don't know that I was, maybe I wasn't paying enough attention in college. Maybe I wasn't taught these things. As I said, I smoked a lot of pot, so I'm not, who the hell knows who the hell knows, but um, I would say, you know, there were several moments. Look, when I joined the Young Turks, I, I basically considered myself a, a progressive and I was around that whole thing. You know, there were several moments that woke me up to it. I would say, you know, the, the when Sam Harris uh, was on real time with Bill Maher and, and Affleck called them gross okay. and racist, yeah, yeah. Like, that was the real wake up for me because it was such a clear example of, whoa, you try to have a nuanced conversation. In this case, discussing the difference between Islam, which is a set of ideas which you should be allowed to criticize just the way you could criticize um, the Old Testament or you could criticize a political party set of ideas. Or if, you, if you're a tennis player, you can criticize the rules of tennis. Um, that's different than being bigoted towards people. You should view people as individuals. But anyway, so that was one where I really saw the left go completely bananas and start calling people like Bill Maher who's been the standard bearer of the left forever. Now he's a racist. So it was that one. Then Charlie Hebdo was basically the final straw for me because I saw so many people on the left saying, no, you're 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 poking the bear and you can't make cartoons about these things. And it's like, wait a minute, these the people that you don't want to upset because of cartoons. Guess what? They don't like gay people. They don't like gay marriage. So are my odds of gay marriage like what they call it? I mean, it's a line from George W. Bush, actually, that I think was maybe written by David Frum, but the soft bigotry of low expectations. It's not David Frum, actually. It's a it's a different speechwriter. But. The idea that certain people, based usually on the color of their skin, should not be treated the way we treat everybody else because they obviously think that they're idiots or something. I mean, that's actual prejudice. I'll jump in
0: there and I'll say that I think that currently that's the most prevalent and widespread form of what I actually consider racism is is that soft bigotry of low expectations. And also that idea that people who look a certain way or are from from a certain place, I mean, I think this happens with, with gay people as well, is that they must subscribe to this set of ideas and dogma. And if they don't, whether that's Kanye West or someone like myself has caught a lot of flack or any black conservative that's out there in the US or the UK or whatever, you know, there's this idea of I've had literally like white guys or white women... Essentially, trying to tell me what I should yeah. think or what what I should believe in or whatever, you know, trying to imply I'm some kind of traitor to my race or so. And, yeah. I, and I'm just like, do you not realize how this goes? Or the whole Kanye West debacle last year, I yeah. was just watching that with with my mouth open. You know, what that that CNN segment when they were saying, "Oh, what yeah. happens when when Negroes don't read?" and I was just like, this They're is
1: racist. I, mean, I was the- like this is. <laughs> But the thing is, you, I, I don't want to become what they are. But you're yeah. right that this is the new pernicious racism of the day. There are no laws that are stopping you from doing anything. You, it's your life to live. Go live it. But they have created, they're the ones that see racism everywhere. And if you look for something all the time, you will find it. And every time you find it, no matter how small it is, you have to keep blowing it up into something bigger and bigger. Actually, one of those wake up moments that I had was I was on the Young Turks. And one of the guys, they were, always, you know, they were always obsessed with Fox News. So every day, it was like, "What happened on Fox News?" They're irrelevant, but we're going to talk about them for an hour. And they were playing a clip of Fox News, and there's a guy on Fox who's a conservative by the name of David Webb. He happens to be black, and I—he's a oh, friend one, of mine. Is he the one who was accused of yeah. having white privilege recently? Yeah. So this—think <laughs> this about this. So we'll talk about that in a second. But think about yeah, this. Yeah. This, is about, this is about five years ago. So this is five years before this incident that you're talking about. Um, David Webb happens to be black, but he's a conservative and I was on Sirius XM with him. That's where we got to know each other. And we used to go out to dinner and have drinks and all that. This is a good man who believes in conservatism and he happens to be black. Well, I'm on the air with the Young Turks and one of these guys, a white progressive male, he kept saying how David Webb is a sellout and a token and an Uncle Tom and all of this all of this stuff. And I I wish I had said it on air, but it was one of the crystallizing moments for me where I was like, whoa, you guys are the racists because I know, David, I know this man you're talking about. I know his set of beliefs and that he believes them to be true. And you think by because you look at him and all you see is a black man that he does not subscribe to you want what you want him to subscribe to. So now you're so enlightened that he must be a sellout. And that is bigotry. And it, by the way, it's a perfect segue into what you just referenced which happened just a couple of weeks ago. And by the way, the woman that he was on the air with with that and this is a you, do you want to explain it for the for the audience that maybe didn't see it? Ariba Martin was the one he was on with and I've had her on the show as well.
0: Okay, yeah, sure. So, this is uh to anyone listening, this was um when David Webb was on a radio show and he was essentially accused by I can't remember what, what company she worked for. But well,
1: she's a, she's a CNN contributor. Her name's Areva oh, okay. She's been on my show. She's a oh, okay. activist, though.
0: Okay, yeah. So she accused him. There was something he said about his progress in the world of media and radio yeah. and saying that his color never held him back or something. And then she jumped in and said, well, this is a something like this is a perfect example of white privilege. And he was like, "What are you talking about?" And she was saying, "Because you're white, you haven't experienced X, Y, and Z." Yeah. And this, and this is like, this isn't even like a light skinned black guy. This is like a, a, black, a black black guy. Yeah. <laughs> and he best, was just
1: like, "Sorry." The best part of this thing is that. So then he calls her out, and then she just crumbles the way they always crumble. She goes, "She goes, well, my people gave me the wrong information." Which obviously is made up. What are you saying? That your people tell you the skin color of who you're talking to? Well, you're talking to a white person today. I mean, if that's true, then her people are all racist. I mean, it's just it's just embarrassing, and it's and it's a pathetic, dim way of viewing the world. And let, let, let's put it this way, Zuby. Imagine imagine uh, me and you. Uh, let, let's pretend I was a rapper, right? Yeah. And, and we came from different places, all these things, but now there's one slot left in like, you know, the biggest rap festival of the year. And, you know, we're both busting our asses, however we do it, whatever it is. And then, you know, they whittle it down and now there's just you and me. And then they were like, well, we're gonna pick the black guy. We j- that, he's black, so we're just gonna pick the black guy, you know? He's obviously been more oppressed than this white guy. Now, forgetting the fact that I'm gay, which I don't want any credit for, but, or imagine if they were, imagine if, depending on which way they view the oppression Olympics, if they thought mm-hmm. some people think gay is above black, most think black's above gay, and and usually Muslims above all of those, but, you know, some combination of there, if they were like, you know what, Ruben's gay, so we're just gonna go this way. It is the antithesis of what it is supposed to be, to be human, and that's why we gotta fight it, man. That's why we yeah. gotta
0: Absolutely, I was gonna say at that stage, I could, I might quickly change my gender and then <laughs> right. see if I can, uh, I'll identify as something else for the time being. That see be. if that can see if beautiful that can beautiful
1: woman, by the way.
0: Oh, geez. I, I dread to think that mere vision scared me um, wow. <laughs> with this beard as well. Yeah. Awesome, man. I know we're, uh, I know we're coming up to the last few minutes, Dave. So I wanted to ask you about this, uh, this journey you're, you're going on so far. So I know you've got the, you've got the book coming out. When's that, when's that coming?
1: Book will be out in spring of 2020. You know, there's going to be like a slew of books coming out in the fall of 2020, right before the election. So we wanted yes, to get it yes. out a little a little bit before that.
0: Can't believe there's an election next year. Crazy. I, <laughs> that's another segue. So where do you think, I know, I know predictions are tricky and people are going to, people are going to come back to this, but where do you think that's going to go? Do you think Trump is going to get reelected? Do you think the Democrats are going to return to some semblance of sanity and there's,
1: there's no, there's no sign that the Democrats will return to any semblance of sanity. I mean, you know, when the, when the governor of Virginia was doing these, you know, eight, nine month abortion comments the other day, I was tweeting out, you know, is anyone, is anyone on the left or a Democrat going to just stand up and say, you know, I'm pro-choice, but this is bananas. And I didn't see it anywhere there's you know they're talking about you know 70% marginal tax, tax rates and if that, which means that if you live in New York City and you hit those high rates you'd actually pay 84% in taxes after city and state taxes these are crazy things that sound good they don't even sound good though well right. to, to me well, to it, me they sound terrible <laughs> in the most in the most re, in the most low resolution way they sound good cuz it's like oh let's take from people who can do whatever they want or elizabeth warren you know some billionaire bought a yacht, so we're gonna have a a billionaire tax. And it's like, do you know how many people he employs? Do you know how many people made money off of this guy being able to buy this yacht or anything? But but even putting all of that aside, what right do you have? Just because you feel like taking more from someone, it doesn't mean you have a right to do it. So I would say there's no evidence whatsoever that the Democrats are gonna moderate. I don't know where any of the decent liberals are. I have no idea.
0: I was gonna say they're on the right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. So look, at, at, out of the collection of people that they're running right now, you know, say Kamala Harris and Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren and, you know, maybe and Cory Booker and whatever. I mean, out of all of those, if my choice is those people and Trump, I'm voting for Trump. And I say this as someone that didn't vote for Trump in the first place. Um, and I and I still have all sorts of res- reservations about him in a certain way. But if that's my choice, then, then I'm voting for Trump. And I suspect that most people would too. They've taken out radical positions that without the mainstream media would be thought of as radical positions, but the mainstream media sells them as if they're all good and decent. And I and I don't think they are. And I think most people, you know, we have an extremely strong uh, suspect nature about government in the United States. Like how did our country get formed? No taxation without representation. And I think people don't want an encroaching federal government. So I hope that there's some moderate. I mean, look, even just in the last couple of weeks, Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, said he might run for president. And the left turned on him in the most crazy ways. You've got Ocasio-Cortez talking about this billionaire, blah, blah, blah. The guy grew up nothing. He grew up in in the projects, this guy. Like, he's a a self-made billionaire. It's awesome. It's the American story. Everyone would want that story. But now he's the bad guy, too. So if you want to find bad guys everywhere, I'd say join them. But if you want to find something that's basically um, intellectually flexible and uh, you know you've got you've got MAGA people on the right, you've got never MAGA people, you've got neocons, you've got you've got classical liberals, you've got ex-lefties, you've got libertarians. It's like there's a lot of room there to to find some common ground. And that that's the space that I'm interested in right now. Yeah.
0: This is my personal opinion. I, I catch flack for this all the time. But again, from an outsider perspective, looking out for- from the UK over to the USA, to me, it looks like Trump is doing a pretty good job. I th- I feel like with Trump, you've got the people who look at what he says or what he tweets, and then the people who look at what the policies are and what's actually yeah. happening. As, as far as I'm aware, you know, I can understand people not liking his personality, thinking he's offensive, thinking he's too abrasive. Like I get all that. Yeah. But looking at what's happened over the last two years, I don't know, you're in the US, I'm in the UK, but it looks no, like- it looks like things are pretty, pretty good.
1: I always say to people, it's like when people are going on like some crazy anti-Trump tirade, and it's not like I'm a Trump cheerleader, but I always say, Well, all right, remove the tweets for a second. Remove remove some of the way he speaks and his affect and the tweets. Give me policy. Give me policy. And actually, are we are we going into more wars? No, we're actually way scaling back wars in Syria and Afghanistan and everything else. There's there's good talk in North Korea. Um, he's lowered taxes, he's lowered some regulation. Then the one they'll always say is, they always say the Paris Climate Accords. And then you say to them, well, what are the Paris Climate Accords? And they they have no idea what they're talking about, right? They never know what the hell the Paris Climate Accords are. Even though, I just read a thing in Bloomberg News that the United States is actually hitting many of the, um, many of the mandates that were in the Paris Accords. We're still hitting them and succeeding okay. and exceeding some of them, even though we're not even in it anymore. So people just don't know what they're talking about, and I think if we could stop focusing on the show, you know, the endless Twitter wars and the fight, you might step back and go, "Whoa, America's America's doing pretty well," and and I don't know where they're doing it better. So maybe we should be uh, a little more careful before we throw the baby out with the bathwater.
0: And that sounds like a good place to end. Awesome, Dave. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, brother.
1: Yeah. Good luck. And, with- um,
0: Thank you. I'll uh, hopefully Get be out in the
1: States. Thing, at some... I can retire, okay? <laughs> what did you say? Get this thing so big that I can retire. Oh, man. I, oh, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm down. I'll, I'm working. All right. Thanks, man. I am the man sick with the slang. Sick and I'm for fame.